Support for Radioactive's Punk Rock Farmer comes from Go Biochar. The following program was pre-recorded. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists and community builders weeknights at 6 here on KRCL. I'm Laura Jones. It's Punk Rock Farmer Friday, so Al Dine Strict 9, KRCL's Punk Rock Farmer, in the studio with me. Hey, Al. Hey, it's good to be here. Uh, we're going to go deviate a little bit today. We're gone fishing. Gone fishing, but you know, fishing... Fish water connects to the agrihood, right? Yes, it does. We know some folks. One of our Circus DJs Brown. here, Circus Brown, he uses his own uh, fish feces. Oh, okay. We did. I'm. Uh, do I need to believe that? <laughs> to water his plants with. It's and, good for you. And plants. I know folks use fish emulsion too, and I do. But uh, mm-hmm. that's the ground up whole fish. Yeah. And it's nasty too. <laughs> well, you know, I've noticed over this last year of COVID, people trying to find space outdoors to at least go and be. And fishing is kind of right up there, I think. I think everybody wants to get outside. And I've seen some great pictures of folks being outside. And there's some great stories in this book on fly fishing, the Bear River watershed. And uh, Chad is with us. Chad Van Zanten is with us today. Also... Mary Beth. Yes, Mary Beth. The Wasatch fi- Community the Gardens. fish whisperer herself. <laughs> <laughs> Carolyn Hardgraves is with us. I'm excited to have her. She's um, We've seen each other on and off at um, the uh, USU extensions, the small farms conferences and stuff. But we're going to talk fishing because mm-hmm. she's... She gets a big smile on her face, and it transcends, and it makes me want to go fishing. Well, and then we've also got Randy Oplinger coming up on our panel. He is the sport fish coordinator for the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. So we've got from newbies like Caroline to veterans like Chad and Mary Beth and and Randy. Also coming up, we've got, um, it is Earth Day month, right? April 22nd is Earth Day. We're going to be bringing you some different conversations, folks getting up to good trouble on environmental issues and climate change. So we're going to hear from Purple Air, They're the folks that uh, help us measure what our air quality is. In fact, we got one right out back here. Um, and there's a great map where you can see all the data around you as well as around the world, thanks to them. Skywatcher Leo T is coming up with another Many Cultures, One Sky report. But let's start where we always start out. We always start with music. And today we have some folks back with us, at least one from the band Way. Spock's with us, and one of our favorite rock and roll bands we've mm-hmm. had, and they really blew the roof off the studio when they, they came and it. played in the in the <laughs> in the room next door. They were one of our louder entries yeah. back when we could have bands live. They play punk rock boogie, according to how they build themselves out there in social media land. But uh, Spock, you got three new songs you're sharing tonight. Hi, how you guys doing? Good. Al- and it looks like up. looks like we had one of your bandmates zoom in. Introduce us. Oh, uh, that's Brian Kubaris. Hey, yeah. Brian. Just barely made it. Yeah, you did. It's good to see you. I haven't seen oh. you in quite some time. Oh, I miss you. I miss you. I miss you more, brother. <laughs> you know, we had our first band practice last night after 13 months. Oh, wow. We, House of Cards played a show on March 6th. Oh, the old folks getting back together, And huh? the old folks <laughs> got back together. They all got vaccinated, all the old guys. <laughs> so uh, we, we practiced right yesterday. That was pretty cool. So making music, and I'm kind of curious, Spock and Brian, how yeah. that's been over the last year for you as we get ready to introduce one of your first new songs. 
our last performance was uh, March of last year, a little birthday in the basement thing for, for me. Uh, Brian and Trevor Goss, our drummer, and myself got together and just kind of busted out a few songs for everybody. And, and that was the last time that we were actually physically together playing. Oh, other than jumping in the studio, I think in July, and we cut one of the songs that we're going to listen to today. Um, and then it's been kind of quiet as far as like actual getting together and playing. We've been mixing the new album uh, during this whole time. And that's been quite a process and we're getting closer to it. And I'm hoping for a, uh, I'm hoping for a fall release on this, uh, on this double 45, 33 inch, uh, 33 RPM, excuse me, uh, release 12 inch. That's what I'm hoping for. Brian, how are you over COVID? Yeah. It was a real kind of special. I mean, anytime you go in the studio, it's a big deal, but not having seen anybody for so long and being in each other's presence and and actually making music together, that was huge. So what's the new album going to be called or the the new EP? Is it album or EP? we're, We're playing with a few ideas and we don't know just yet because there's a little give and take and, uh, that that's to TBD to be determined what what it's going to be called, but there'll be nine tracks on it. <laughs> so this uh, first song kind of relates to the whole turmoil of the last year. Tell us what it's called, a little bit about it as we go into it. Uh, this is called "You're a Goner" or uh, "Goner," and in parentheses, "Sinner's Requiem." I I wanted to do something that had to deal with what we were all going through, and we were going in to cut one song and. Mike, Mike Sassett said, well, you know, we spent all this time getting it set up. Do you have another one? I said, well, pretty close to finishing one. I guess I have to finish it. Got it together, went in and tracked it. And it's about, you know, people hooking up during a pandemic (laughs) or the end of a pandemic. And it's not an anti-mask song, as you may think when you hear the chorus. It's more about living life on the edge knowing that your days are numbered possibly so it's a unique love song this is way with your goner fresh and homegrown right here on carecl 90.9 fm
Support for KRCL comes from Go Biochar, a climate beneficial soil additive that can reduce water consumption for lawns and gardens. Orders and information at gobiochar.com. Hi, this is Billy Palmer, associate producer for Radioactive. I wanted to share with you a common thread among many of the guests that come on to talk on our show. We hear them say thank you for caring about this issue. Thanks for being willing to have a full conversation about it and not just looking for a quick soundbite. Community matters to you, and it matters to us. We're talking about homegrown and heartfelt media since 1979. The next Radiothon is just around the corner. We're hoping to count on you to help keep this heartbeat going. And if you want to help get things going now, you can always go to krcl.org and click on the orange donate button. It'll feel good to know that you're helping to sustain and grow our vibrant, diverse community. Thank you. Skywatcher Leo T, it's many cultures, one sky. Looking at the beautiful new April sky tonight, there are a few treats for us as always. All you have to do is look up and look around. But tonight we can spot a Nova. Yeah, a Nova in Cassiopeia. Grab the binoculars if you have them. And even if you don't, it's worth looking to find Cassiopeia the Queen or the W situated standing on her head. And where is she? Well, it's sinking in the north-northwest right after the end of twilight. Look early before it gets too low so you can find the Nova. It's a beautiful twinkling specter with many clusters and star circles and just below Cassiopeia, the constellation known as the Marge Simpson Head, or Perseus as it's known in Greek mythology. Well, 
the somewhat bright supernova. Cassiopeia 2021 erupted March 18th and peaked a bit there, but is still there. It's a bit below and to the right of the lowest star on the end of the W in the direction of Andromeda Galaxy to the right. So if you go too far, you might end up going past the nova and getting lost in space. I've attached a sky chart to the Skywatcher Facebook page. Also, while the sky is dark, spot the Big Dipper dumping water very high in the northeast. The Dipper is the back end of Ursa Major, the bear. Nearly crossing the zenith or the top of the sky are three pairs of dim, naked eye stars marking the bear's feet. Gazing at these can give you a magical feeling to see the different colors and feel the distance and time and space. They're also known as the Three Leaps of the Gazelle from early Arab lore. They form a long east-west line roughly midway between the bowl of the Big Dipper and the Sickle of Leo. Continuing with many cultures, one sky, as we flirt with the birth of this year's spring, the rabbit. In Chinese zodiac is a most prominent sign. Those born under the rabbit are thought to have considerable power. Many Native American myths tell of the hare returning to the sun, to the sky, and returning warmth. The patterns of day and night and the seasons of prosperity. Look on the Skywatcher page, there'll be a nice painting of Kaltis by Susan Saint-Boulet. This is a moon rabbit goddess venerated by Ergic peoples of western Siberia. As we continue with a little more reflective tone on this trip, I hope you'll enjoy a little horoscope reading from Holiday Mathis at the Casper, Wyoming Star Tribune. Mercury, the planet of communication, draws a technicolor connection to Neptune, the planet of dreams, mixing up the alchemy of magic moments and visions with much further reading effects. Look on the Skywatcher page for all these sources and some fun photos. Keep the fire burning. Stay tuned to KRCL, serving the universe. KRCL Spring Fun Drive is near, and let's help keep it shining in the night. Look up, look around, get lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T. Hey, thanks, Skywatcher Leo T. And more to come from Way. Do stick around. I'm Laura Jones, and this is Punk Rock Farmer Friday with Alan Strick 9. It sure is great to be here. Got a couple things we want to share with folks in rallies and resources. First of all, hey, Al, Salt Lake City is requesting community input on the proposed projects for a new public lands master plan. And there's this whole confluence, Seven Canyons Trust, over there on 13th South and 9th West, where they're daylighting the creeks. And it's pretty darn cool. So if you want to help Salt Lake City reimagine nature, and this is a plan that's going to take the city through the next 20 years, Al, then this is a way you can get involved in the community, reimaginenatureslc.com is the website. The engagement window with the public is from now through May 7th. So it's time to uh, get involved in that regard. We'll put a link in the show notes. One other news item that I wanted to let people know about and a way to get involved in your community is to apply to be on a regional advisory council and help decide how wildlife is managed in Utah. We're talking fishing coming up in a bit. Um, so if you are uh, into fishing or anything else with managing wildlife in Utah, um, there are six interest groups, Al. Hunters, anglers, and trappers. They call them sportsmen. Uh, <laughs> those who don't hunt or fish, non-consumptive. I don't fish. I don't hunt. But you've been getting into some of that lately, I yeah. hear. Ranchers and farmers, agriculture, locally elected public officials, federal land management agencies, and the rest of the general public. So you're going to have to fill out uh, a form, and uh, there are some vacancies on the, uh, let's see, the northern region, non-consumptive, central region, non-consumptive, and southeastern region, sportsmen and agriculture. We'll put details in the show notes. All right, so Aldine, uh, April 
is Earth Day month, is what I call it. It's coming up on April 22nd. In the coming weeks, Radioactive, we'll be bringing you news and conversations with folks getting up to good trouble, working on climate change, other environmental issues in our community, including a Three Quick Picks project with our friends at Clever Octopus and getting ready to launch CareSeal's Craft Collective because we get all those records donated and not every one of them gets sold. Mm-hmm. And instead of going into the landfill, we want to do something useful with them. So we're going to do some upcycling. Stay tuned for details on that. But tonight, I've got an interview to share with you. It's just a short four minutes. It's about clean air with the founder of a Utah company that helps us citizen scientists map air quality. And uh, it's called Purple Air. They use these laser particle counters to provide an accurate, low-cost way to measure smoke and dust, other particulate air pollution, and full disclosure, KRCL, an early adopter. We've got a monitor here at the station that you can see if you go online to their their air map. It's purpleair.com. But from his early days, starting a DIY campaign to shine a light on air pollution at the south end of the Salt Lake Valley. He lives out there, and uh, Geneva Rock was kicking up a lot of stuff. As we build more and more, there's more activity with trucks coming in and out with that uh, gravel and such. Um, Now he's got about 25 employees. So this is Purple Air's Adrian Dubois, who says Purple Air is now, uh, it's got tens of thousands of air monitors installed worldwide. Uh, You might be a little bit surprised to hear 17,000. How many in Utah? Uh, Utah would estimate 500 to 600, um, something like that. So we have quite a good uh, coverage over the whole valley and also in other areas um, behind the mountains and, and around everywhere. Initially, the pros, so to speak, were skeptical of what you were offering. And now you've got 17,000 of things, these things around the globe. I take it you've won over not just the consumer, but some of the pros. Yeah, it's actually quite exciting uh, to have that number of sensors, to have the uptake that we have. And it's even more exciting to have um, the EPA, for instance, has released their fire and smoke map. You can see it on airnow.gov. Uh, look at the link at the top for the fire and smoke map. That's really about taking our sensors and combining it with their sensors and putting it on a single map to help people that are experiencing wildfire smoke to to know what's going on. In Utah, though, tell us how it's going and why you think it's starting to catch on for you know folks like me to have one here at the station or at a house and to be contributing to the overall picture of our air quality. You know, Laura, I think the the main driver uh, for a lot of people is a personal desire to know more about the air quality. Uh, People that want to go running or cycling or they have kids that want to go out and play are able to make decisions about when to do those activities and base it on some information about air quality. We get people telling us all the time that their kids, uh, we're helping to manage their kids' asthma better or they decide when to go running based on the air quality. One of the things that's been interesting over COVID was, you know, the theoretical, if we just stopped driving, air quality would get better. And I'm curious about the data from your Purple Air Monitor Network when we all stopped driving back in March of last year. You know, that's a very interesting question. And uh, it's it's quite a common um, idea that COVID would have made a big difference to um, the, the emissions. Uh, it, it also made emissions change. People were spending more time at home, so they were doing more things with the heating on their, the central heating in their house, for instance. So it just made, basically moved pollution from one source to another in some way. 
But the great thing with our data is that we record it all, which means that at some point, someone who is going to go and study the effect of COVID on air pollution has this wealth of information that they can compile and create uh, a study out of. Um, we're not aware of, of any of those types of studies yet completely using our data that have been finished, but there's a bunch of them in progress. So moving forward, what's the future like for Purple Air? From a passion project to a company with 15 employees, what's next? We're going to continue growing our network. Uh, we're going to continue um, supporting our users and improving our um, infrastructure, like the website and all of the tools. Also tools that allow people to access the data and to use the data. So we're just going to continue building. Uh, also new types of sensors that, for instance, detect things like volatile organic compounds and ozone. There's work in the background on those types of sensors. So how can people get in touch, check out the sensors that you offer, maybe even just play with the data that you have? So on uh, the website is purpleair.com and you can see the map, uh, the worldwide map. Uh, just click on the map link and uh, you can browse around it. Uh, you can also then um, email us if you want access to the data and we will share an API key with you. And you could email us at contact at purpleair.com. And that's Adrian Dibwad of Purple Air right here on KRCL Radioactive with Aldine, KRCL's punk rock farmer. Hey, Al, let's bring back Way, our featured local band for the night, which plays punk rock boogie, according to their Facebook page. Hey, Spock. Hey, Brian. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having us. I woke up this morning and the first thing I heard on the radio was uh, our band. Not being played, but being mentioned. And I'm like, damn, this is great. I could have a good day for a change. <laughs> you already heard uh, the Goner song and got Sweet Adeline still to come. But set up this next one for us, Bus Stop Boys. My daughter helped me write this one. Uh, in her During uh, her middle school years, there were some kids at her school that they called the Bus Stop Boys. And they were real rapscallions, real mischief makers, skaters, and they all rode the bus together. And the mayhem that they caused at the school should go down in their history. <laughs> hey, speaking, and, speaking of skating, Spock, you do a, a skate camp with uh, hopefully COVID starting to uh, distance itself in the rearview mirror. Are you going to be having skate camp this year? Absolutely. Go to our website, SpockSkateCap.com, and you'll see all the new dates and locations and pricing and opportunities for our all-girls sister sort of sh shred, as well as private lessons. Check out the website. The registration links are not live yet, but you can get a preview of what's going on for this summer. So we're back Monday through Saturdays and Sundays for the for the other little things that we do on Sundays. This is Way with Bus Stop Boys, fresh and homegrown, KRCL 90.9 FM.
We can all help reduce Utah's drought, fix leaks around the house, run full loads in the washer and dishwasher, take shorter showers and hold off on watering landscapes. Reservoirs are low and wildfire risk is high, so let's all do what we can to save water. More information at drought.utah.gov. Welcome back to Radioactive on KRCL 90.9 FM. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now!, followed by Not a Sideshow with Circus Brown. And at 10.30, Keith and Nate with Friday Night Fallout. Hey, Al, check out the new edition of Slug, which is on the street anywhere cool, because there's a whole feature on Keith oh. and what he's up to in the community as well as the Friday Night Fallout show. Very good. And that's online too, Slug Mag. Check it out online as well. And heads up, Al and I writing an article about digging in the dirt that'll be posted there soon. And we'll be bringing in some tips for everybody on how to do that. Uh, and you can find out more details on all the lineup here at KRCL as well as the Punk Rock Farmer Friday Archives at krcl.org. But now it's time for our Urban Farm Report, Aldine. Yep. Tonight we're headed to the fishing hole, and we have a panel with newbies and fly fishing experts. Uh, Chad Van Zanten is with us. He's the author of the new book on fly fishing, The Bear River Watershed. Uh, Mary Beth Janerick is with us, and she's our buddy from Wasatch Community Gardens, but she's been fly fishing for quite a few years, and uh, she agreed to join us, Randy Opplinger. Uh, sport Fish Coordinator, Utah Division of Wildlife Resources, and Carolyn Har Hargraves. And she's new to fishing, but man, she has the spirit. I'm telling you. So we got this wide panel, and you and I have different experiences with fishing, and we're hoping it encourages everyone on this beautiful, this gorgeous weekend to consider something uh, to get themselves outdoors. But also, if you're going to catch some fish, you may release, you may eat. It is up to you. <laughs> I am I kind of want to start with uh, the Division of Wildlife Resources, Randy Opplinger, Sport Fish Coordinator. What kind of job is that, first of all, Randy? Well, if you look at fishing in the state, you know, there's a, a lot of functions that we do as a state agency to provide fishing opportunities for, for people who like to go out and fish. So we've got hatcheries that stock fish. We've got people that go out in the field and they kind of manage our fisheries and decide how many fish we should stock. And they look at uh, things like the regulations that we should have placed in the fisheries and the best species of fish that we should have. Anyway, I'm kind of over that program. So I, I specifically work with cold water sport fish. We talk about cold water sport fish. We're really talking our, our species that like colder water than other species. So these are really your trout, salmon, grayling, and whitefish. So 
that's a couple of things that we do, but I'm, I'm kind of primarily over the trout program we have in the state and just the management of trout, numbers of fish we stock, fishing regulations, that sort of thing. There's there's quite a few different trout, brook trout, brown trout, tiger trout. Um, it, what else is there? How it, Rainbow trout. Am I missing any? Yeah, you're missing a couple. We've got uh, cutthroat trout, or the native trout species that we have here in the state. So we're promoting cutthroat fishing a, a lot through the state. You missed lake trout, which are kind of a, a deep water, large reservoir species. And then you hit on tiger trout, which are actually a hybrid species between brown trout and brook trout. We've got one other hybrid trout species that we work with, and it's splake, which is a cross between brook trout and lake trout. I've caught a couple splakes at Joe's Valley before. Yeah, no, they're they're a good fish. They're a nice fighting fish, and they get pretty good size to them. Yep. Uh, Chad Van Zanten, author of the new book On Fly Fishing, The Bear River Watershed, due out this month from Arcadia Publishing. Hey, uh, Chad, welcome to our Punk Rock uh, Farmer Friday and our Urban Farm Report, which has gone to the fishing hole. One of the cool things I love about this book that I've got in my hands here is there's a map, so... I can see all the secret fishing holes that you've been going to. <laughs> but then also um, the way you organize it with this historical timeline. I'm kind of curious if you can tell us a bit about why you felt it was important to put the timeline of the Bear River watershed in there for folks. Uh, yeah, I, that's a that's a good question. Um, there are a lot of stories about the, the Bear River watershed in the in the book, and I tried to be really clever and arrange them in the sort of chronological order of a fishing season. So the book starts out uh, sort of generally and it moves into late fall and winter and then through spring and summer and then back into fall. And, uh, but, but there's a lot of events and historical happenings and uh, natural history that's going on. And I kind of wanted um, a, a reader to be able to put all of those historical um, events into context uh, in, in, a, in an actual chronological timeline. So I, so I put the, the history in there so you can say, you can look at it and say, oh, here's when that article is happening in history. Here's when this one is. And, and they kind of, uh, so if, you're, if you read the book, you can look at the timeline and kind of figure out that a lot of these historical, uh, you know, anecdotes are happening contemporarily, or some of them are kind of far back in history. And some of them are happening kind of still right now, you know, they're still underway. You love this book. Well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Al, but I, you had some comparisons, some high praise. It made it made me think of an Abbey book that I've read before, Desert Solitaire. It has those little excerpts in it, and you're down on like tourism and well, not tourism, but like Abbey, but like the Boy Scouts were kind of bumming you out. <laughs> <laughs> and I just I, and I really liked it. I thought it was cool. I, I have nothing against uh, Boy Scouts. I used to take Boy Scouts <laughs> to the Wind Rivers uh, in a in a past life, um, and they're fine. But it 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 really is kind of a, a a truality that our natural places are being you know slowly loved to death. Yeah. And, uh, and I I don't try to answer uh, or come up with an answer to that problem, but uh, you know it's uh it's something that you kind of go out there and deal with. Um, uh, having a place to yourself is increasingly rare in this, uh, in this you know, day and age, it's especially uh, COVID, you know, COVID has uh, caused all outdoor rec to spike. Apparently everybody, the weaver is being actually, you know, trampled to death as we speak. 
I, I heard they were going to close it or something. I, I drove through Weber Canyon a few, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and there were fly anglers and dog walkers and recreationalists just line, literally lining the road. We thought there was a parade that was going to come through or something. <laughs> it, was it sounds like fishing to you is a solitary um, adventure, or at least with just a couple of your good good buddies with you. So maybe you could share a bit about what fishing is to you and how you got into it. Because I, I either you don't fish or you're all in. It doesn't seem like there's an in-between. I, I, I was talking to a guy one time and, and he and I worked out that we both, uh, you know, had an interest in fly fishing. And he said, yeah, I used to do a lot of fly fishing, but I don't anymore. And I said to him, I, I said, I hope I never get to a point where I, where I say the words that you just said. Uh, because I, I really do feel strongly about it. it is something that's important in my life. Um, and, and, uh, it's, it, it is good as a solitary activity, but it, it's also really great with friends and, and can be just absolutely the most rewarding thing you can do. Um, and if, if you want to know what fly fishing means to me or what, what the essence of fly fishing is, all I can tell you is I've written three books on fly fishing. I still am trying to work that answer out. <laughs> um, but but one thing that does happen, I think, in the in the sort of uh, narrative arc of a fly angler is that you start out and you just want to catch fish. You want to get better at catching fish so that you can catch fish, and you catch fish so you can get get better at catching fish. And as, at a certain point, a question sort of appears in the in the air before you, and and the question is, why are you doing this? <laughs> What is, what's the end game of this? How many fish do you have to catch before you're satisfied? And it was a question that I, I really sort of uh, tangled with, you know, like you catch a hundred fish, you catch 200 fish, you catch a thousand fish. How many more fish do you need to, to catch? And at a certain point, I figured out that what was really going on in fishing is it's not a pursuit to catch as many fish as you can. It's not even a really a pursuit to get as good as you can be. Uh, at fly fishing, because there's lots of little skills that you have to have to be able to, to fly fish effectively. What it really was, what was really happening is that fly fishing, like a lot of other activities, fly fishing is not unique in this uh, regard, but like a lot of other activities, fly fishing drops you into flow. It drops you into the zone or your Zen mindfulness or whatever you want to call it, because it's a very engaged activity. You have to engage you have to engage at a certain level of commitment to be able to do it effectively. You're walking through a stream, water is coming at you, you're negotiating obstacles, you're ducking branches, you're trying to keep your fly rod and your fly line <laughs> from getting involved with trees. And then you're casting. Casting is a very um, technical uh, uh, skill that you have to have in mind. And then you're catching fish. All these things are happening at the same time and everything in your mind sort of gets squeezed to the sides so that you go into that flow Zen mind uh, set. And, and people say, hey, is fly fishing relaxing? It looks really relaxing. I say, no, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, sort, of a, it's sort of a constant state of, of low intensity panic. So, you know, <laughs> I think a, there's really a, a commando as aspect to it. I think you're kind of like a commando I, and, and crawling up to the bank and, and like, I mean, the fish are facing into the flow of the river, so you get behind them and cast above them and let it flow to them so they can't see you, those kind of things. And you want to find the big hole, and you want to float through the big hole. And, 
Oh, goodness. If I could see better, I'd still be... I can't see to tie the flyer. Put the damn fly on anymore. I need magnifying just, just put glasses. Put your peepers just on. Put a, put a number, just put a number eight on there and just hope for the best. It's right. A foam grasshopper and hope for the best. But when you're doing that, when you're sneaking up on those fish, your mind has to be empty. You can't be thinking of problems at work. You can't be thinking of Ooh, what you're going to get your wife like for that. Christmas. You have to be involved. But then after, after you get home and you're not fishing anymore, your mind has kind of a clearness to it and you can begin to reorder all of those concerns and things. Your As humans, our minds are always bombarding us with thoughts, mm. negative thoughts, neutral thoughts, positive thoughts. They all go away for a bit and you can sort of bring them back in in an orderly way. And that is when the real, for me, that's when the relaxation comes. That's Chad Van Zanten, author of the new book on fly fishing, the Bear River Watershed. We're at the fishing hole with Al Dine, KRCL's Bunk Rock Farmer. <laughs> we have a newbie and another veteran we want to add to the conversation. Mary Beth Janerick from Wasatch Community Gardens. I understand she ends the uh, the growing season with a trip to Idaho to fly fish and a bottle of whiskey or tequila, but I'm not sure which one we're going to talk about. <laughs> Plus, Carolyn Hargraves, our newbie on the panel. Uh, we'll get to Caroline in a second, but Mary Beth, did, did I categorize you correctly on how you finished uh, <laughs> That is definitely one of the, the big events for us every year is uh, steelheading um, in the fall. And, you know, I just want to say, I think Chad described exactly what my experience with fly fishing has been. It's just, it's incredibly therapeutic and engaging. Um, and it does require sort of the the pursuit of knowledge and the acquisition of skills over time so learning all the fly patterns what's imitative what's suggestive um, of the of the targets of the fish and then learning how to catch different fish so i mean over the last 26 years we've fished for trout for steelhead for stripers in maine um for flats fish uh which are all number of different kinds of species, uh, jack, permit, bonefish, tarpon, uh, snook, redfish in the Florida Keys and in Mexico. Um, those are saltwater fish. And, you know, with every type of fish, you need to consider different tackle and different flies. And then, of course, there's fly tying and then you get into fly tying and you tie for six hours straight. And so all of these things are just one of the best distractions in my life. <laughs> um, yeah, talk about that because it sounds like the point is to get out of town too. I mean, you can't fish in for, your backyard necessarily and be out in the wild. Well, you know, there's big Cottonwood Canyon. Uh, the Uintas are nearby. The Provo, the the lower, the middle, and the upper Provo. There are uh, destinations that are really close. But for us, um, my husband and I met fly fishing in a snowstorm on the Provo River in 1996. <laughs> uh, I like to tell people he blew me off at first. I said, isn't it a great day to be fishing? Uh, to this man that had just parked his car and he walked by and he said, well, yeah, but only because nobody else is here. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, excuse me. I'm just chopped liver. I'm in your space. Um, and been together since 1996. But because he probably wondered who this crazy woman was out in a snowstorm um, fly fishing with lefties deceivers. 
<laughs> on the Provo River with eight split shot. Anyway, um, I that's a bunch of fly fishing talk things. that just went right over Damn. my head. But <laughs> the, the, I was basically impressed. using a saltwater like small minnow sort of pattern in the Provo River, which is a very unusual um, strategy. Did you have success? Uh, I used to reel in the biggest browns from, you know, the deepest part of the river on these big fish, with, on these big flies. But with eight shot I, on, you're you're getting it down in the big hole is oh, what was, you're talking about. I was scraping the bottom. Uh -huh. yeah. And um, anyway, we, we've just been on a lot of out-of-town adventures and uh, started doing a lot of backpacking and fly fishing trips combined. So packing in with your fly rod. Um, into Yellowstone, into the Wind Rivers, as um, Chad mentioned, the Uintas, of course, uh, and then these these farther destinations. So we've uh, we've done a couple of trips to the Pacific Northwest to steelhead up there. Um, you really get to Olympic see some Peninsula. pretty country and, that way. Yeah, and we we bought a camper in like 1999, I think, uh, and it's our trout mobile <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and the the most fun for me is bringing all the produce from the garden um so i'll bring these flats after you know flats and flats and flats of fresh produce from the garden so we eat incredibly well in the camper um and but during the day we're fishing all day yeah. so um it's it's just been one of the biggest joys of my life really mm. Let's bring in Caroline Hargraves, the newbie you found, you, you caught for us here, Al. Well, she, I, I just see her fishing, uh, her pictures on Instagram, and she always has the biggest smile, and she's always having so much fun out there, and she goes by herself, she's... She's out there fishing. I think a woman out there fishing is pretty. I when your husband saw you, Mary Beth, he was. I would be attracted to a woman out there fishing. And, <laughs> I mean, there's no doubt about it. I, I think it's really cool. I think just that all that goes along with it, and and you look like you have so much fun, Caroline. You do. Oh, it's it's so incredible. Um, even if you don't catch a, a single thing, which happens more often than not, it's just so magical. And then when even like a hint of a fish or like a rock that you think might be a fish pops up, like your heart <laughs> gets racing. Or if I get lucky enough to like get a bite or land something, I'll be shaking so bad for like 20 minutes. I can hardly even tie on more tippet <laughs> or a new fly. And then you're like trying to race it. It's just everything about it is really incredible. So you get like yeah. almost like buck fever or something, right? It's like your heart and then you starts see one racing. And, and they're there. Yeah, like they live in the water. And of course they do. Like that's their home. But like the the pleasure and like the fortuitousness, the luck of like getting to stand in a river. See, I get so excited talking about fish. I forget half my vocabulary. Well, what but took you into it? It's just so unreal. Yeah, what, what drew you to it, and, and how did you start up? So for our listeners tonight who might be thinking, fly fishing, like Chad was saying earlier, there's lots of stuff, and you got to do this, you got to do that. You know, for a newbie to go out there, and sometimes there's a little bit of um, <clears throat> side-eye from the pros to the newbies, what made you decide to do it? And tell us about that first day on the water. Um, I mean, it can be really intimidating. It's, like, there's just so much to learn. I feel like we're so lucky where we live that there's so many great fly shops and everyone's so excited to share their knowledge with you. Like, I feel like there can be a culture of gatekeeping or people wanting to keep their secrets. But for the most part, I think people are just so excited to share something they're passionate about. And then, you know, in sharing 
some a tip about flies they can also share a tip about like oh don't tread on the reds like when the fish are spawning like little things that as a new person you'd have no idea could be dangerous or like harmful to the environment um i'm lucky to have some friends and acquaintances that fly fish and a few of them were really nice and like took me out and showed me the ropes so i'm i'm so grateful for their time and also i'm just stubborn as heck so <laughs> fly fishing is so frustrating and there is so much to learn that it's one of those things like if i'm bad at something i'm either gonna hate it forever or keep trying until I have at least a little bit of luck with it. Um, but I, I feel like I could echo 100% of what Chad and Mary Beth said. It's just such a nice way. I've always been drawn to going outside, whether it's like a wonderful day and you're in a great mood or if you're like going through something difficult, just like putting things in perspective. And fly fishing is such a great opportunity and excuse to see more of Utah and more of the world. And you're posting about it. Al found you on Instagram, wasn't mm -hmm. it, Al? She posts so, on Instagram. So uh, what kind of reaction are you getting to your fishing posts? What are people saying? Oh, I just get so excited. Like, you'll have the occasional person who's like, was well, that a fish or is that the bait? Like, when you catch a little <laughs> tiny cutie. Like, the little, oh, fishing <laughs> stories. The they're so too. beautiful. Yeah. Like, they're so colorful and vibrant. And I keep joking that I really want to land, like, a two-hander. But we'll see. Like with time, hopefully. Do you catch and They're release? Out there. They're out there. Yeah. Do you catch and release, or do you? Eat? I do. Yeah. How much do you eat versus how much do you release? I've never kept one. Really? Okay. So you're just out there for the love of, of being on the water and uh, seeing what you can do. Mm -hmm. It sounds like. What's your favorite There's so spot? So many other creatures to see. Yeah. Ooh, a favorite spot? Yeah. Paint a picture for us of one of your spots. It sounds so cheesy and corny, but I really couldn't choose. Like seeing the weaver in fall when the bushes are so yellow and vibrant that it's surreal. Or standing, you know, like you might drive by Heber a thousand times and you look at that beautiful river below and not think twice about it. And then you find yourself standing there one day and seeing the osprey soaring up ahead. And the Uintas are just so full of magic in their own way. And then driving home once the sun has set, the way the trees just are silhouetted against the night sky, whether or not you landed any fish the whole day. I, I couldn't begin to choose. It's better when you catch fish, though. I mean, let's be clear. <laughs> hey, Chad, there's in, in your book, hand me that book there, Al. I was reading in a, I, I got into a couple of chapters and you paint a really interesting picture of the Bear River and what's going on. Can you kind of give us some of that? I don't know if you want to pull it up and, and uh, read from your book, but you talk about the challenges. Uh, there's a drought going on, folks. So I'm kind of curious what's that, what, what is that doing to your fishing or... Do you feel like you're a sentinel at all looking at uh, what's going on on the river? Chad? Uh, there, there are a lot of problems. Um, well, all, 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 all the rivers in the Western United States have some kind, face some kind of challenges and have impairments and, and suffer from drought. Uh, it's, and, and it's very difficult to not look back in anger at what has happened conservationally from the arrival of European settlers in the West to now. That, that 150 or whatever year period was full of very poor decisions and a lot of overutilization and a lot of um, ruination really of natural resources uh, here in the West. We are trying to step back to, to you know, con conserve and restore uh, uh, rivers and natural areas but we will not be able to, to restore that to pre-settlement conditions. It would just be impossible. And so it, it doesn't matter where you are, the Bear River or the Yellowstone River or, or the, you know, the Uintas watershed, um, there are just rivers that have been 
abused and and overutilized and we have to kind of start from where we are now and and go forward and so writing this book it was a little bit difficult to find the good news or to find the progress or or, or the you know the the things that were happening that you could be glad about but they are there and i and i try to bring out a lot of them there was a a dam removed from the the bear river watershed not too long ago that doesn't happen a lot you know dams getting removed and and here in the west we're we're always talking about building more but dam, in case you don't know dams dams have a way of breaking up rivers and and uh, isolating trout populations and and uh we were really really you know um we were really keen on dams through the 20s, 30s, and 40s. In the 50s, we started to slow down, and, and now we don't build a lot of new dams, but um, we try to, to remove them when we can and live with the ones that we have. Uh, so, so I guess what I'm saying is there are a lot of problems in the Bear River. It's overutilized. There's fights about water. Diverting there, water, et cetera. That's an ongoing controversy. But closer to your home up there near Logan, there's a task force to restore urbanized sections of the that's Logan right. River, the Bears' largest tributary. That's right. That's right. The Logan River going through Logan, as it snakes through Logan, historically has been this sort of urbanized, weedy, uh, closed up uh, uh, river section. And the Logan River Task Force is currently uh, daylighting a lot of these sections and restoring them to kind of natural conditions. And if they keep doing this, the river flowing through Logan City will be as beautiful as as it is in in, the, in Logan Canyon, which is saying a lot because Logan Canyon is just absolutely phenomenally gorgeous. Uh, so so there is good news. There, there is good news. You can go down to a park in the middle of Logan right now and, you know, maybe catch a two pound brown uh, because it's been restored so effectively and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful area and more restoration is, is taking place and more restoration is planned. So Good news, and there's there's tons of bad news. We could talk forever about the bad <laughs> news, but there, but there is, you know, there are people who are like, we need to step back. We need to take some steps back and 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 respect these resources, conserve them, and restore them. Well, and there's the confluence that's being daylit down here in Salt Lake on the west side, and it becomes actually economically advantageous to a city that needs more green space, that needs more nature in it. And Mary Beth, you know all about that with Wasatch Community Gardens and the work you do there just to help people grow good food. Um, uh, I want to hear about your favorite spaces, too, like we asked Caroline and Randy, you as well. Um, Mary Beth, paint us a picture of one of your favorite Utah spots. I guess one of my favorite, um, let's see, Utah, I guess it would be the Middle Provo, um, which in over the years, I have seen um, just a huge increase in the number of fishermen up there. Um, so it's gone are the days that you can drive up there on a Saturday <laughs> and fish. Um, and not be disturbed is, <laughs> is what you're saying. I mean, even find a place to park. I mean, it is just, uh, it's it's beyond it's like trying to go up big cottonwood now in february to ski i mean it's just not um a possibility really and so you you work your vacation schedule around it you know so that you can take a couple of days off during the caddis hatch in the summer and um get off work early or take the day off and uh maybe can your tomatoes during the day and then head up there around three and um 
fish the evening hatch on an August evening, something like that. I mean, just, um, I think part of what I love about it now is just that uh, extreme familiarity. So knowing where the bends in the river are, knowing where the rocks in the river are, knowing, um, having those memories flood back when you go to the space and you remember that fish that you caught, you know, it must've been 2004 and, you know, or that night that I, um, I slipped and I broke my rod tip. It's like, <laughs> just, it's just those, those memories that just make your life so rich. And I, I think that the older I get, it's, it's those memories combined with the current experience that, that make it so incredibly pleasurable. Uh, and just reliving those memories, you know, we, my husband and I probably sound like a bunch of old geezers or whatever, you know, to oh, remember the day. And I pulled that one that, fish out of the water in the pomo. I, exactly. I caught that last one on a jelly donut. <laughs> we're talking fishing here on a punk rock farmer friday edition of radioactive krcl 90.9 i'm laura jones aldine strict night krcl's punk rock farmer here and uh we just have about 10 minutes left in this panel um i want to go to randy from the utah division of wildlife resources where he is the sport fish coordinator and we're talking a lot of uh, for me as a layperson who does not fly fish, you know, my first experience is dropping a, a line on a reel, just, you know, um, somewhere close to home and uh, hooking my brother by the ear. <laughs> why, why won't this go? So, Randy, I know there's lots of resources on your main fishing page. Can we get that website? And maybe you can talk a little bit about some stuff that can help folk get into the fishing life here. Yeah, we've got a ton of resources available for people that hopefully help people to get out to fish. Our, our webpage is wildlife.utah.gov. And we've got a great new tool that's been online for maybe the last couple of years or so. It's a, it's the Fish Planner website. So it's basically a map of a state. We're progressively adding points where you can see where you could go fish and you could go click on those points. And it'll show you the reservoirs and the streams and it'll show you the fish species that we put there and uh, the, you know what we're stocking right now into that water. It shows you the regulations for the water. It shows you the good access points. So where are the boat ramps? Where are the little pull-offs along the road where you can go and fly fish if that's what you're into? Um, and also there's fishing reports on there. So you can get on there and you can see both from the Division of Wildlife perspective, you can see kind of what we're saying the fishing is looking like. And then also there's angler reports. So you get good information on there, if it, like what flies fishing well, or you know if it's, uh, you know, bait fishing well, or what species fishing well, how deep the fish are, all that kind of information's on there. So about licensing too, because you got to have a license, or it could cost you a little bit. Yes, you do have to have a license, so you can find licensing information on our webpage as well. It's all on that Fish Planner webpage, but it's on a separate webpage. It's part of that page, so wildlife.utah.gov. So if you go to that page and click fishing, you can start getting all our resources. So how you purchased your fishing license, and it could take you to um, uh, the information on that Fish Planner webpage. And then of course we got up the social media feeds, you know, like Facebook, for example, we've got a pretty active webpage. Our, our staff do a great job of keeping that updated and there's a lot of good fishing information to get posted there as well. Do you have a favorite fishing spot that you'd care to share? You can uh, describe it generically if you'd like, as opposed to drop a pin. <laughs> no, 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 I want specifics. <laughs> yeah, I'm not as eloquent as everyone else. Uh, my favorite spot's probably the Blacksmith Wharf River. So up in the Logan area. 
I, I, I guess my history, I, I went to school, Colorado State University, so Fort Collins, which is a, a good fly fishing town in its own right. But when I went to school there, I wasn't really into fly fishing. It was starting to kind of develop that hobby. I got my first fly rod while I was in college, but I also didn't have a car when I was in college, so I couldn't get out <laughs> to really get to enjoy it very much. And then I decided to go to graduate school in Illinois, which is not exactly the trout fishing hotbed of the world. And I, I decided after a few years in graduate school, it was a great experience. I, I got to see some different species of fish, didn't get a fly fish out there. I decided I wanted to get back somewhere where I could fly fish. So I took a job up in Logan. It was really nice. I had an opportunity to take that fly rod that I bought and hardly used for a few years while I was in graduate school and get out and start using it more and more. And Blacksmith was pretty close to where I was living. So it made a nice spot where I could go after work. And it's kind of where I, I hone my craft and you know it, it's a lot like everybody else has described you know the experience you're getting out there it's, it's really a thinking activity you're you know trying to pick the right fly to put on the end of your line to entice the fish and one thing people haven't talked about is the presentation is really important you got to be getting your fly to look exactly like a natural insect if you don't do it the fish are smart enough to figure out that you're, you're throwing a fake out there you're trying to trick them to take your hook so you know kind of honing that craft and then of course you know the scenery the solitude you know I had plenty of times and I'm out fishing and a moose comes out, for example, 15 feet from me, you don't see it coming. It just suddenly walks out and, you know, you get those experiences. Okay. Fishing. That scares uh, the, the, the fish out of me. So <laughs> yeah, there yeah. are some safety precautions. You need to be aware of public private lands as well, Chad. That's something you write about in your book on fly fishing, the Bear River watershed. You'll be driving along and you'll go, why isn't anybody fishing there? And it's because, well, that's a private stretch and that's hard to navigate, Chad. Uh, yes, it's actually it's it's actually kind of a big deal in Utah right now because the uh, uh, our legislature um, sort of bowed down to some um, some real estate interests and 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 placed some laws that really had a way of restricting the public's access to the waters of Utah that run through private land. Um, there's a, a doctrine called the public trust doctrine in the Utah State uh, Constitution that basically says that all of the waters, the, the, the navigable waters in the state belong to the people of Utah. And there were some laws put in place that sort of restricted that, that, that sort of um, that, that, that iced out the public from waters that they previously had access to. And it's currently working its way through courts and through legislation and, and through litigation. Uh, but um, that's, a, that's another Another issue is is that, you know, why can't I fish there? Why can't I fish there? You know, why can't it? It, it became very very complicated, and there is a there is a chapter in the book about this. But, uh, um, yeah, that's just one more thing. You know, on this river that's completely public, you might not see another uh, a living soul uh, for for you know uh, you know during the the off season. But during the on season, it's completely plastered. Here's a, a stretch over here that doesn't have anybody on it, but it's private, you know, so you have to dot you're dodging other anglers, you're dodging private property, you're maybe taking risks with going on to private property. But uh, yeah, it's a very frustrating, very frustrating uh, issue, but that has some hope on the on the horizon. If you're in the water, are you safe if you're in the water, even if it's in private That's property? That's the thing that that's what happened is that the laws restricted that privilege. It, it, 
most Western states started out, hey, if you're on private, if you're on public land and you get in the water, you can move through privately. Right. That was that before about 1999, that was the case. Then there was this big blow up with the Conitzer case that went to the Utah Supreme Court. There was some legislation that came in and then that was no longer something that you could do. You, you could not access private water from public land. It's, it's slowly reversing now. It started with a case on the Weber. It, progressed with a case on the Provo. It's still at the, the, the penultimate decision is still with the Supreme Court, hoping to hear about that, you know, maybe this year, next year. Uh, but uh, that that's, that's the way it should be, I think, is that public water should be accessible if you can, if, I'm sorry, private water should be accessible if you access it from public land. Uh, and, and uh, hopefully we'll get there again. Mary Beth, I see you shaking your head in, in agreement there. I'm taking it you've had to navigate that as a, a veteran fly fisherwoman. Yeah, in a number of different places. There's uh, a creek up near um, south of Ennis uh, off the Madison. It's a tributary to the Madison River. Uh, and there was a big case up there because uh, you have to cross private, private property on foot to access the creek. Um, and on the Madison itself, there are large swaths of river that, um, you know, have all sorts of warning signs, <laughs> you know, private property, do not enter. And, um, and we are one of our favorite uh, areas of the Madison is um, around the $3 bridge area. So basically between West Yellowstone and Ennis, Montana. And there are some stretches in there um, that are private. And, you know, you just have to respect what the current laws are. And if you have the bandwidth to get involved um, on the political end or support organizations that are um, there to advocate for fly fisher um, access, then that's great. Um, you know, my husband and I don't violate those laws. So if there's something in place, we, you know, mutter and groan and have another margarita or <laughs> go to <laughs> From a the trout mobile. <laughs> trout mobile, exactly. Um, but it's, it's frustrating. Um, there's never anybody there, you know, and a lot of those um, stretches of private water are, you know, owned by folks that don't even necessarily live in that state year round, but they just own that property. And it's, it's just super frustrating mm. um, as an angler, as a recreationist to, to not be able to, to just cast a fly, you know, and, and enjoy a beautiful summer day. Caroline Hartgraves is uh, the, perhaps the most recent adherent to fishing in our panel here on Punk Rock Farmer Friday. Caroline, um, I don't know your backstory. I don't know if you're an environmentalist or an outdoors woman before this, but um, has fishing made you more attuned to those issues or the politics surrounding those issues as, as it affects your new favorite hobby? Absolutely. Um, that's been one of the most helpful things that I found on the website that Randy mentioned was being able to find those access points. Because I know a lot of like people who've been fly fishing for a long time, you hear like, well, that's, I'm not just going to show you my spots. You need to find <laughs> that on your own, which I, I respect that. And I'm willing to put in that effort, but I like really naively thought you could just pull up Google maps. I can't tell you the number of drives I took last year, like my first year really fly fishing, thinking you could just follow that blue squiggle on Google maps and like end up somewhere. Then you're just driving and it's like, well, that's a cool farm, but I can't get in the water. 
that's another cool piece of property, but can't, you know, so it, oh. it has been really enlightening learning about all of this. You know, one Carolyn, thing that- if, Carolyn, if you really, if you really, really want to get into it, um, check out Onyx, Onyx uh, mapping. Okay. O-N- I haven't heard of that one yet. It's O-N-X, Onyx mapping. Uh, it's a new app and it's a, it's a whole thing that will show you to the, you know, six inch uh, degree where you can fish and where you can't. Ooh, dropping, dropping uh, the inside tip there, there, Chad. Um, so I, I'm kind of curious, Caroline, as the newbie of the group, did you have any safety concerns? And I don't just mean physical safety from other humans, but like you said, you, who was it that said there was a moose? I think Randy said there was a moose, uh-huh. like just popped up, but also... A lot of people who haven't had experience around water aren't smart around water. So were there some things that you did to educate yourself? There are a lot of things that I wish I would have learned sooner. The little waist belt that comes with your waders. I thought that was just to accentuate accentuate your curves on the water. Like, no, that's to keep you from drowning. So I'm glad to know that and to not just throw it in my trunk. Um no, my my dad blesses the heart. He's always trying to get me to like conceal carry and like pack heat on the water. And I'm like, I just don't. I don't see a lot of good coming of that. Like for me, I'm a little clumsy. So, you know, a, I, a life vest would probably be better for you than a life vest. My <laughs> first couple of weekends when I'd go like way out in the mountains, I had a little taser and then like, well, you know what happens when you drop that in the water? It doesn't work <laughs> anymore. So I could stand to be more aware of my surroundings. Probably yeah. the moose you mentioned, I saw a family of a deer just the week over the weekend. I'm like, those are some weird dogs. And they're just like <laughs> 10, 10 yards away. Oh, wow. Um, so I think situational awareness is important. And then being clumsy, like don't, don't fall in the river and drown. It's good to go with a friend. Like I yeah. should probably spend more time with others than on my own. Try to always let someone know like where I'm going, when I'll be back, especially if there's not a signal and got a little like GPS thing. So if there is an emergency, you can make contact. There are a lot of little things that seem common sense, but when you're just out like with a sandwich and your fly rod trying to have a nice day, you might not think enough about ahead of time. Randy, are there resources on the fishing page? Yeah, certainly. I think we've got some safety tips on there. And but I think it kind of goes on what a lot of other people have said. It's just be smart, plan, you know, bring water out there, go with friends, have safety equipment. And I think also don't overestimate your skills. I can't tell you how many times I've tried crossing a river that looks easy and then you, you get halfway across and you realize that's not a good idea. It's, it, it's good to play it safe. Well, we have just about five minutes left, so I wanted to give everybody an opportunity to to sign off with their favorite tip or, or story. Randy, you got anything that you want folks to know? As Because uh, I'm thinking spring, it's fishing season, but from what Chad says, it starts in the fall and then comes back around. So, uh, Randy, your number one tip. My number one tip. Wow. You put me on the spot here. Uh, you know, I, I think get get some information, get some help before you get out there. I, I think that that's a good tip. I, I much kind of taught myself how to fly fish. And I, I think it's turned into this 10, 15 year kind of adventure where I'm getting better and better, but it takes its time. So it, it's good to get out there with some friends and get some people to, to help you out because that really kind of jump starts you and, uh, you know, gets you going in the hobby. How about you, Caroline? What's your number one tip or story you got? Lean on people, you know, who love it even more than you do and can share. Like I I wish going into it that I would have invested in better equipment because less than a year in and I've already replaced almost everything I bought at first. (laughs) Chad, what's your number one tip and also a website where we can uh, send people for your new book? Oh, uh, the book is just available on Amazon. Um, It's also, you could also find it at Barnes and Nobles and um, 
uh, oddly, uh, you can also find it at Walgreens. I don't know. My <laughs> publishers they have those little twirly metal racks with books in them. And I think this book will be in there um, throughout Utah. So uh, just stop in when you're, you know, you're getting your cough syrup, just uh, stop in and grab a copy of the book. My, my tip would be, um, I think I'm, I'm with Carolyn on this, uh, find people that are fun to fly fish and eliminate the people who are not fun to fly fish with. Eliminate them quickly because the, the people that you fish with have an effect on your fishing experience from day to day. Uh, but yeah, f- find some friends um, and, and kind of make it a social thing. Fly fishing is sort of the original social distancing activity. Um, and uh, if any of you guys want to come up to uh, Cache Valley, beautiful Cache Valley, uh, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll show you some places. I'll show you some secret places. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, keep going. Just go outside. Go outside. Where can people find you on social or the web? Oh, if you want to find me on social media, just look up On Fly Fishing on Facebook. And I have a, a website where we just post, you know, silly things and fishing information, but there's information about the books there as well. Mary Beth from Wasatch Community Gardens, we're going out with you for your number one tip or story about fly fishing. I think that my number one tip would be to form relationships with people in your local fly shops um, and really get to know them and be willing to share information with them as well as ask them for support. Uh, listen to their advice. And, you know, we, we still go to a fly shop and um, catch up every couple of months with this man named Mickey who sold me my very first fly rod in 1994. Um, so I think, you know, support your local uh, businesses, your local fly shops and, and form relationships with those, with those folks. Thanks everybody. Yeah. Thanks everybody. I, I mean, we deviated a little bit today, but I had just as much fun today and I can get just as excited about talking about fishing as I can about growing some food. Well, you know, check out the farm (laughs) stands wherever you go to find a a good fishing hole too, right? Very good. Thanks everybody. Thank you. Thank you. And Aldine, that's our show. Before we go, Radiothon is coming up. We've got a cool shirt that we're going to debut uh, from our, a local artist. So stay tuned for that. You can find more details online at krcl.org, which is where you can also find the archives of the show. My thanks to Billy Palmer, associate producer. And of course, Aldine Strike Nine, KRCL's punk rock farmer. We do have one more song, though. Very good. Our friends from Way are with us. we got Spock as well as Brian Kubarich. And uh, guys, this is the last song of the show. Uh, three new songs you've shared with us here on Radioactive. Where can people pick up the album and when is it going to come out? Are the singles out? Are you going to be playing anytime soon? Fill us in, Spock. All right. So we have given you three singles and you're more than welcome to uh, share those with your listeners as much or as little as you want. <laughs> <laughs> Um, as far as the album, we're still in the process of uh, finishing up mixes and um, maybe adding a little bit of spice here and there to, to it as we see fit, as the song speaks to us. It's a, it's a labor of love. It's not a fast process by any means for what we do. Uh, I had anticipated an earlier release, but it looks like it's going to be a little bit later this year. I'm, I'm hoping for the fall. Um, probably do some kind of uh, 
sourcing out there to offset the uh, costs since we're really not gigging and there's no there's no finances rolling in other than pre-orders. We'll, we'll do that once we have it all mapped out and uh, and um, have something that we can actually share with the uh, with the with the fans with the listeners. Uh, create a product, a package for them. Um, so with that, this last song uh, is uh, "Sweet Adeline." Brian, what do you think "Sweet Adeline" is about? What what, do you, what are your takes on that one? Um, I don't know what it's about. I never know what you're talking about, but that's one of the funnest ones to play. It's one of the easiest ones to play, but it's really fun. I think that one we actually rock out. Yeah, this one's a mover for sure. Um, I know we wrote this back in the, back in the earlier days of the band. Um, Eli Morrison had a big hand in, uh, in arrangement with this one. Um, and it's, this one's really kind of personal to me. Uh, six years ago, yesterday, um, somebody very dear to me, um, I had to, uh, I had to get them checked into the hospital for a stay so they could become, uh, reconnected in, in their lives, in our lives. And it's pretty heavy. Uh, but the title, Sweet Adeline, I used to live on Adeline Street in Oakland, California in a warehouse and and we were nicknamed the sweet out of line boys. So if you listen carefully, you may hear that, that reference in the song as well. So what's the music? website where people can pick this up? Oh, we'll have it uh, on Bandcamp. We'll have the actual physical in the record stores. So those will be the places that you can shop for it when it, when it gets released. And we'll, and we'll let everybody know when it's time to go with that. This is Way with Sweet Adeline, right here, fresh and homegrown on KRCL 90.9 FM.